welcome to the Fit for the Future podcast, which helps you navigate this fast-changing world by bringing you ideas, information, interviews, and insights for being fit for the future. Here's your host, Gihan Pereira. Welcome to the podcast. This is February 2017, and I hope the year started really well for you. In this episode, I want to talk about innovation. There's been a lot of talk recently in the last few years about disruption, digital disruption, industries being disrupted, and all of those things are true. But I've noticed a subtle shift recently that we're talking about now what to do about disruption. So disruption is about what's happened to the world or what is happening, and innovation is about what you can do to tackle disruption, to stay ahead of the game, and to make sure that you're competitive in a disrupted world. So today I want to focus on innovation. I noticed that a lot of conference programs now have a theme around innovation and being asked more and more to talk about innovation and even asked to go into businesses and do a deep dive and look at how to be more innovative. And the thing is that innovation is everybody's business now. It used to be that innovation was something that was done off on the side by an R&D team or by a separate skunk work Steam, so look up the term skunk works if you haven't heard of it. Uh, so innovation was something that wasn't everybody's business, but that's changed now. And it's changed for a number of reasons. First of all, our world is changing so fast that you can't just wait until your R&D team comes up with the best innovations. Uh, another reason that innovations change now and it's become everybody's business is that people are more innovative. Uh, your younger team members are coming into business and coming into your organization with great ideas. They're smart, they're talented, they're savvy, and they've got great ideas ideas and they're more than happy to share them if you let them do that. Uh, and the third thing is, of course, that customers and clients can be more innovative as well. And if you think about extending that out to the whole world, then some of those people who are innovative are your direct competitors now. It used to be only the person down the street, but now it's not just this, uh, only the people in your own city or your own country, but potentially people from anywhere in the world who are competing with you. And let me give you one small example, and this is innovation across different industries. So recently, I changed my insurance policies. I spoke to my insurance broker. He reviewed all my insurances, and he recommended that I change to different providers for various reasons. Now, insurance is not something that I particularly care about. Uh, in fact, it puts me to sleep. So I was quite happy to leave it to Todd to handle it all for me. Um, and one of the things that he did was he signed me up with AIA Insurance for one of my insurances. It may be TPD or trauma or something. Anyway, as a result of signing up with AIA, uh, I get access to their membership program. And one of the benefits, which is particularly useful for me, is that I get a 10% discount on all Qantas bookings that I make. And uh, as a professional speaker who travels around the country a lot, that's a huge advantage for me because it cuts down my travel costs quite a bit. Now, that's an innovation that AIA has got, which gives it a bit of a competitive advantage over other insurance companies and providers in that space. But if you look a little bit further, it's also disrupting the travel industry. Uh, there are travel agents who are working on a much lower than 10% margin, and they're suddenly uh, facing competition from someone completely outside the industry. Industry, it's from the insurance industry and they may not have expected it to come from there. Uh, so that's an example of some disruption that's happening even across industries. And that's why it's so important to be innovative now because just doing what you've always done isn't good enough anymore and that's why you need to innovate. 
So I recently created a program called The Future of Innovation. It's an audio program, it's available on CD, and it's all about practical innovation in a fast-changing world. And I created this program for leaders within organizations. You don't have to be the business owner or a senior leader, although it's applicable to you as well, but it's for anybody who's a leader in an organization, leading a team, and they want to be more innovative, and they want their team to be more innovative. So in this episode, I want to share with you two extracts from that program. So broadly, the program looks at innovation at three levels. It looks at you being more innovative. It looks at you creating a culture of innovation for your team members. And then it looks at innovation outside your organization as well. So involving your customers and clients. So in this podcast episode, I want to share with you two extracts from the program, which are both about that second area, about getting more from your team members. The first is how to create and foster a culture of innovation in your team. And the second is about putting this into action, even when you're busy. So let's listen to those extracts now. In part two of the program, I want to talk about employee-driven innovation. Let me start with the story. In the early 1990s, Les McEwen, who owned a chain of Pizza Hut restaurants in Ireland, implemented a new technology to speed up the ordering process in his restaurants. So instead of his waiters and waitresses writing orders by hand and taking them to the kitchen, he invested in these handheld devices to send the orders directly to the kitchen. Now, of course, today you see many restaurants doing this with staff using iPads or other tablets, but at the time, it was a novel idea, and the technology worked. In fact, it worked too well. It worked so well that it caused a problem. See, what happened was that the kitchen staff started preparing the pizza so quickly that if a customer changed their mind about their order, even seconds after the order went through, then they had to start all over again, and suddenly they were wasting a lot of ingredients and a lot of food. To his credit, Les McEwen didn't give up on the technology immediately. So he and his team tried a few things to make the situation better. First of all, they tried to tell the kitchen staff to wait a few minutes after the order came in, but that was a bit of a logistical nightmare because the orders were coming in, the staff were busy, and they didn't quite know which orders to work on at which time. Then they tried asking the wait staff who were taking the orders to delay sending them through. But those little devices at the time didn't allow orders to be stored, so that wasn't possible. And then they tried asking customers, are you sure, before sending the order, but that just annoyed the customers. So eventually, after trying a number of different things, they decided to give up on the technology, and they decided to go back to pencil and paper orders. And they were announcing this at a staff meeting when one staff member had a bright idea. Why not ask the customer to hit the send button, she suggested. And this brilliant idea solved all the problems. Customers felt good that their order was being started at the click of a button, and at the time, it was really new technology. So they were really excited to be in a restaurant that was using this cutting-edge technology, and they subtly got the message that when they pressed the button, their order was final. Now, if not for this chance comment from a staff member, and McEwen admitted that it was a chance comment, the company might have given up on the technology and their $50,000 investment, which at the time was quite a lot of money. So here's the point. Successful leaders foster this culture of innovation in their team, and they know that innovation is everybody's business, and they encourage ideas and suggestions from every team member. In the past, when most organizations could rely on only a few innovations a year, innovation could be done separately by a marketing department or an R&D department. But now, your business is more complex, employees have more ideas, and the external environment is changing so fast, so innovation has to be everybody's responsibility. And people are smart and savvy. 
For example, when my niece Abby was 10, she used to play with Lego Friends toys. And when she outgrew them, she sold them on the online trading site Gumtree. Now, the rule in her family was that she keeps half the proceeds and she donates the other half to a charity. And she chose a local dog shelter. So the way she did it was she set a really attractive price. And I remember one kit that she sold within 11 minutes of advertising it. So think about that. At the age of 10, Abby was learning about online trading, about marketing, about social responsibility, and a new model of ownership. This is a far cry from a generation ago when kids earned pocket money from lemonade stands and newspaper runs. It's even a far cry from 10 years ago when Abby was born. There was no YouTube, Facebook, smartphones, Kindle e-readers and Google Maps. Now, Abby is still a few years away from entering the workforce, but businesses, including yours, already have other Abbeys in your team. So these are smart, talented, innovative people who are already making a difference in the world and will make a difference in your team as well if you let them. So this is not a new idea, but it's more popular now than ever before. Broadly, this is called employee-driven innovation, and it's adopted by organizations and businesses in different ways. You might have heard of Kaizen, which is the Japanese process of continuous improvement. You may have an employee suggestion program, or you may have an innovation community. And even if your organization doesn't have one of these formal programs, you can still foster innovation within your own team. And as I said earlier, innovation isn't always about massive changes like iPhone, or Google or driverless cars, regardless of your team's role in the organization, there will always be opportunities for improvement, and your team members are often the best place to suggest these improvements. They could be simple improvements like removing an unnecessary step from a process, simplifying a form, or changing a customer interaction, or tapping into social networks, or using a new software tool, or saving five minutes on a repetitive task, and that's innovation. And it doesn't require a formal program or an R&D department. Of course, you can have bigger innovations as well, but the idea is that you can start small. And by encouraging innovation, you not only improve your workplace, you also increase employee engagement. Now that employees have more choices, greater flexibility and less automatic loyalty is becoming increasingly difficult to get, motivate and keep the best people. And if you can give those people the chance to apply their skills and talents to innovation, you can keep them motivated and engaged. Now, of course, different people are motivated by different things and being part of an innovative team isn't for everybody, but it is a motivator for many people. So let's talk about how you make that innovation happen in your team. So metaphorically, you can think of your innovation strategy as like lighting a fire. A fire needs three elements, which are sometimes called the fire triangle. Fuel, heat, and oxygen. The fuel burns, the heat starts a fire, and oxygen provides energy for it to keep burning. So lighting the fire of innovation under your team members uses these same three components, metaphorically speaking, of course. Number one is to create the space, which is your fuel. So you create an environment that allows and encourages innovation. Two, you ignite a spark. This is the heat. So don't just leave idea generation to chance. Ask questions that encourage thinking in different ways. And number three is to fan the flames. This is the oxygen. Recognize, reward, and act on ideas. Then these three stages work together to foster innovation in your team. You first create a supportive environment for new ideas, then you prompt team members to share those ideas, and then you act on them. And that demonstrates your commitment to innovation, which in turn encourages them to suggest even more ideas. So let's look at each of those three areas in turn. First, you create the space. And this is an important first step, to create an environment that allows and encourages innovation. 
In the book, The Chaos Imperative, Ori Boffman calls this creating white space. So think of this as like the margins in a book. They surround the text, but they don't have any information in them. But margins play an important role. They give the eyes rest, they keep the text away from the paper's edge, and they provide space for scribbled notes and highlighting. In the same way, the white space in your workplace is the time away from core project activities, so team members have the freedom and the flexibility to experiment, to try new things, to discuss new ideas, and to make mistakes without facing penalty. Now, you don't need special rooms with bean bags and coloured walls to inspire creativity. You simply make innovation part of your regular environment. So instead of creating physical space, give them space in these three areas – permission, focus, and time. Let me give you some ideas in each of these three areas. First, you give them permission to innovate. So, be open to new ideas yourself. If your team members don't see you accepting, embracing or initiating new ideas yourself, of course they're going to be reluctant to suggest ideas themselves. Then look forward. Some people innovate with suggestions that resist change and restore the status quo. I gave you that example earlier with those two cafes. Now, this does create change, but it's not change that moves you forward. Instead, encourage the sort of innovation that adapts to change, embraces it, or leads it. Next, encourage criticism. For example, every Friday afternoon, team members at the startup company URX meet for what they call a contrarian office hour. So this is a meeting where anybody can raise any concerns, issues, problems, criticisms or opinions about how things are done in the company. The issues are not raised as personal attacks, but as genuine opportunities to improve the workplace. And then be willing to kill some sacred cows. So ask your team members to nominate long-established rules and procedures and the way that things are done that have always been done that way. And imagine what would happen if you did them differently or didn't do them at all. Now, this might just be a thought experiment, but it could spark an interesting discussion or even better, a chance to actually break the rules and see what happens. So that's permission. Then give them a focus for their creative thinking. So give them many opportunities. In his book, The Luck Factor, Richard Wiseman says that extroverts tend to be luckier simply because they spend more time with other people. So they're more likely than introverts to create useful connections just by chance. A similar thing applies with innovation. You can give all team members more opportunities and in different environments. Also share problems, concerns and negative feedback. Part of your role as a leader is to protect your team members from problems so they can get on with their regular work. But if you take this to the extreme, they never get the chance to contribute solutions either. So be more transparent with your team and share problems, concerns and negative feedback, all of course with the positive intent of asking for their ideas and genuinely being interested in their responses. Then dedicate time for specific projects or activities. And at times you might choose to focus on specific innovation projects. For example, software company Redgate ran a Coding by the Sea initiative to challenge their programmers to develop a new product in a week. And at the other end of the scale, they also ran a Sweat the Small Stuff day to give people permission to clean up little things, minor little irritations in their workplace. Next, create an online ideas forum. So this goes further than the old idea of a suggestion box. Suggestion box is good, but it's just a one-way channel to present ideas to management. But an online forum involves everybody. So create an online ideas forum on your intranet and encourage team members to share and discuss ideas. And sometimes you'll get valuable contributions from unexpected places just because the ideas are public. 
And finally, take away some resources. Sometimes it's better to give them less, not more, and that forces them to be more innovative. In India, this is called Jugad innovation, which is about creating something with limited resources. In the Western world, this is often called hacking. The third area, when you're creating space for them, is to give them time for innovation. So allocate team time. My colleague and innovation expert Niels Vesk recommends that at your weekly team meeting you go around the room and ask team members to share something interesting, innovative or inspiring that they found outside work in the past week. You could also allocate private time. Google became famous for allowing their engineers to use 20% of their time to work on their private projects, completely independent of their main work. And this led to things like Google Maps, Google News and Gmail. And even if you don't make this a formal rule, and that even Google has moved away from that now, do give people time to work on their own projects. Then find out what else they like. Ask your team members what lights them up, especially outside work. You never know what might spark great ideas, especially if you can find some overlap between their personal interests and their work role. Also allocate personal time. So you can take that a step further and give them time to work on community projects or other non-work related activities, even on their personal interests. So this motivates them, helps the community and gives their brain free time that can help their creativity and innovation. And then you can create friendly competition. So Instant Offices, which is a company that brokers serviced offices, challenges employees to work in random teams to develop and present ideas in a format like the reality TV series Dragon's Den or Shark Tank. And finally, make it easy for them to speak up. So we've already talked about things like an online ideas forum, but whatever system you use, make it easy for them to share their ideas so that they gain visibility. British Airways does this, for example, for their employees with an online suggestion box, and they were rewarded with one idea that saves £600,000 a year. And it was a simple idea from an employee, which is simply about descaling toilet pipes on his aircraft. But that reduced the weight, and it saved a lot of money. So that's about creating the space. The second area is about igniting a spark. See, most innovation doesn't come from radical changes. It comes from looking at something familiar in a different way. As Marcel Proust said, the real voyage of discovery consists not in seeking new landscapes, but in having new eyes. And this is where your team members shine, because they look at things in different ways. They come from different backgrounds, they have different skills, they're different ages and generations, they follow different trends, they tolerate or don't tolerate different things, and so on. So they often see things that others can't see, and make connections that others don't make. Now you could just sit around and wait for these magic moments of insight to occur, but that could take a long time. A better approach is to seed these ideas by prompting your team members with provocative questions. So let's go back to something that I said at the start. We now live in a fast, flat and free world. And this means that things are faster, we're flattening hierarchies, and things that used to cost a lot don't anymore. So let's look at applying these three areas, fast, flat and free, to questions that you could ask to spark interesting conversations and interesting ideas. So first of all, what if this was faster? My first career was as a software developer. And when I was working in software development, we used to work on software for years. We installed it on site and then customers gave us feedback. Now how different that is from software development now. Now somebody can publish an iPhone app to the App Store, get feedback instantly and release a new version days if not hours later. So what can you do in your team to make things faster? So here are some specific questions that you can ask. And these are all questions that you can ask your team members to think about themselves and to come up with answers. What steps can we eliminate? 
Do you really need every report, every checklist, every approval and every backup that you're currently doing? Even if they were needed at some time in the past, do they still serve a purpose now? And even if they do, could you get the same results some other way? Next, have we made this more complex than it needs to be? After eliminating unnecessary steps, are the remaining steps as simple and efficient as possible? Then, what shortcuts are you taking? Is anybody on your team taking shortcuts or using workarounds for inconvenient procedures or even cutting corners? So rather than punishing them for that, which is quite often the way that things are done, think about ways that you could incorporate these hacks or these workarounds into your processes. Then ask, what are we doing because we've always done it that way? Now you can't just throw out everything and start again, but don't give sunk costs too much weight either. In other words, just because you've invested in something doesn't mean that it's still the best way to do things. Perhaps it's time to move your data to the cloud, dump some old processes, maybe even bypass some inefficient departments in your business. Next, what if this wasn't perfect? Remember the 80-20 rule. The 80-20 rule says that you get 80% of the results from just 20% of the efforts and then spend too much time getting the final 20%. Sometimes near enough is good enough. Next, what problems can we prevent rather than fix? Do you notice that whenever you withdraw money from an ATM, you always get your card back before the money appears? Why is that? So that you don't forget your card. Because you're always going to grab the money, right? But if they gave you the money first, there's a possibility that you leave your card in the ATM. So they give your card back first, and then they give you the money. So can you make similar design decisions to prevent problems? Next, what problems have we actually created ourselves through poor design? I remember my first Apple computer had the reboot or the restart key right next to the enter key and I lost a lot of work because of the clumsy design. Now Apple's come a long way since that time and in fact it's now a leader in design but what problems have you created for yourself or your customers? Next, how can we involve our customers earlier? We're going to talk about that a lot more further on in this program. But as an example, Google's email software, Gmail, was in beta release, in other words, not quite released yet, for five years. And as a result, Google benefited from feedback from thousands of users who were happy to use it anyway. So can you get your product or service out to people faster, sacrificing a little bit of perfection for the chance to get valuable feedback? Next, what are people doing that computers could be doing instead? Could you automate the most repetitive tasks? It might take a little bit of an investment up front, but it could save a lot of time and leave people free to use their brain power for something more important. And finally, what if you made use of mobile technology? For example, do your salespeople on the road have to get back into the office to log their sales calls? That's crazy when they've got a mobile device and internet access at all times. Perhaps they need better software on their tablet so they can do their work on the road. So those are all questions under the broad heading, what if this was faster? Now let's look at what if this was flatter. So think about the hierarchies, the barriers and the gateways that you have already in your current workplace between layers of management, between you and your team, between you and your customers, between you and your suppliers and so on. So what can you do to remove these barriers and how would that improve your results? So I've got lots of ideas for you here, lots of questions that you can ask and that you can involve your team in. So first of all, let's look at a series of questions which are all about working more closely with your customers and clients, including your internal customers. So I'll give you some questions here and then we'll address this later on in the program as well when we talk about customer-centric innovation. First question, what if they trusted us more? Especially if your industry has a poor reputation, how can you build trust? Because that will give you a real competitive advantage. 
then how can we remove intermediaries, middlemen? Can you reach your customers directly, even if it means risking the relationships with the traditional intermediaries who sit between you and your customers? Next, how can we become a trusted intermediary? For example, everybody can book travel online, but there's still a role for travel agents who add value by providing compelling experiences and apply specialized expertise. So can you do the same in your industry? Next, how can we connect customers to each other? So don't only think of customers connecting with you, also give them ways to connect with each other. For example, by hosting online forums, discussion groups and support networks. Next, what if we let customers post public feedback? People trust customer reviews much more than they trust your promotional material or even personal recommendations. And even if your industry doesn't have a broad review site like TripAdvisor or Yelp, give customers a place on your own website to review your products and services. Next, what if you could help customers sell on our behalf? Your best customers and clients want to promote you to their network. So what are you doing to help them? Do you pay a referral fee? Do you send thank you gifts for referrals? Or do you run customer events and ask them to bring a friend? Next, what if we could help our competition sell more? That's a strange idea, right? But Amazon.com sells books at retail prices, but also promotes independent bookstores that are selling the same book for a lower price. Now, of course, some customers will choose the cheaper option, but it's still better for Amazon.com to have them as a potential customer. Okay, so that's about dealing with your customers, and as I said, we'll talk about that in more detail later on in the program. The next area, still talking about what if this was flatter, was to learn from other organizations, even your competitors. So what are other industries doing? When my friend and colleague Belinda Yabsley created the first Mercedes-Benz Airport Express in Australia, she turned to the hotel industry, not the car industry, for inspiration. So how can you tap into other industries? Next, what is the rest of the world doing? You might be doing the best you can, but what can you learn from the best in the world? And keep in mind that world means anybody outside your current scope of operations. So, for example, if you work in local government, the world can be as near as your neighboring local council or as far away as South America. And then, what are trendy startup companies and entrepreneurs doing? Startup companies don't have the baggage of established organizations, and they're more likely to take risks by trying new things. So what are they doing that you can adopt? Okay, so that's learning from other organizations. You can also learn by observing consumer behavior. So here are some questions you could ask in that area. What are the young people doing nowadays? So have a look at what are the latest trends, memes, and hot things from popular culture. Now, you might think they're superficial and shallow, but can they spark ideas for you? What trends can you leverage? So Russia's Alpha Bank rewards customers who exercise by giving them a higher interest rate on their deposits. So they're combining the trend towards exercise with their business. So can you tap into trends and fashions even from outside your industry? What old ideas could we use again? Creativity expert Edward de Bono once suggested that a fruitful way to find new ideas was to trawl through lapsed patents, looking for ideas that failed because they were before their time. Now, this is one area where your older team members in particular might be able to share ideas that were brought up even decades ago but were discarded because they just weren't possible at the time, but they might be useful now. Next, what's personal that could be professional? Smartphones and tablets started off as personal devices before they became work devices. Facebook is for personal use, but can be used to make professional connections. Business class travel grew out of a need to provide something more affordable than first class luxury travel. So, what's happening in personal lives that you could use in your organization? What's so funny? 
what quirky, funny, and even risque things are doing the rounds. In the 1990s, Japanese inventor Kenji Kawakami coined the term chindogu to describe things that are not exactly useful, but somehow not altogether useless. Now, although it was done for fun, some of these unuseless inventions, as he called them, turned out to be useful products, such as a selfie stick, which started off as a bit of a joke. Next, what if this was more social? So how can you tap into the power of social networks for ideas, leads, referrals, feedback and support? And finally, what if this was more local? Even though we live in a connected world, are there ways you could tap into your local community as well? So for example, do your systems unnecessarily involve head office or other parts of the hierarchy? And as a result, are they too broad, too generic, too convoluted or missing out on local knowledge? So those are all examples of questions which answer the question, what if this was flatter? The third broad question to ask is, what if this was freer? Things that used to cost a lot now cost a lot less, sometimes even free. So how does this apply to your products, your services, and even your internal processes? So here are some questions to ask. What physical things could we make digital? So can you provide a digital version of a physical product? What about an automated online version of a service? Next, what expensive resources are we using? For example, what parts of your process are expensive, but you're using them because that's the way it's always been done? Next, how can we save money easily? Publishing company Boardroom Inc. saves hundreds of thousands of dollars a year from an employee idea to make their book slightly smaller in order to qualify for a lower postage rate. Next, what cheaper options are possible? There's a humorous and untrue story that NASA spent millions of dollars creating a pen that would write in outer space, while the Russians just used pencils. Are there similar situations in your workplace, where a simple workaround could make a big difference? Next, what could we outsource? What are you doing internally that you could profitably outsource or delegate? Even simple tasks can cost a lot in time, lost focus and poor use of smart people. Then what can we crowdsource? Are there things that you could send out to a crowd of talented suppliers and choose the best? So this is common for creative tasks like graphic design, but it applies to almost anything you could do. Next, what if you could offer it free to 90% of your customers? So can you adopt what's called a freemium model, where most of your customers use a basic version of your product free, but the 10% who upgrade to the paid version are enough to support the business? This happens a lot in software. If you're using Dropbox, for example, the free version of Dropbox gives you a limited amount of space, but a few people upgrade to the paid version, and that keeps Dropbox in business. Next, how can we tailor our products for each customer? Drug companies spend millions to create drugs that work for everybody, but now some companies are creating a prescription for each patient based on their unique DNA. So that's the last of our list of questions under this broad area of Ignite a Spark. And remember we talked about what if this was faster, what if this was flatter, and what if this was freer. Let's move on to the third area of employee-driven innovation, which is about fanning the flames of innovation. Now, creativity is about generating ideas, and innovation is about putting them into action. So to make a difference is not just enough to generate the ideas. That's an important first step, but it's not enough. You must act on the ideas as well, and that's what fans the flames of innovation. It not only creates real change from the idea itself, but it creates a positive feedback loop for your team members to generate even more ideas. So here are some ways to put this into action. First of all, say yes more often. So don't ask for a compelling business case for every idea. Instead, take the opposite approach. Say yes unless there's a compelling reason not to do it. 
then also take action fast. So don't just say you'll accept an idea and then put it on an ever-growing list of future actions. If it never gets done, there's no point accepting it in the first place. If there's no good reason to delay an idea, then act on it fast. Even if it means diverting a few resources from other work, think about whether it's worth it. It might be worth the cost just to keep the innovation momentum going. Next, share the ideas with the team. Sharing somebody's good idea makes them feel good, inspires other team members, and gives the team more ownership of the idea. You could also ask the team to evaluate and prioritize the ideas. Next, don't evaluate ideas too soon. One study looked at a company that was considering new product ideas, and they found that customers were enthusiastic about many of the ideas, but managers weren't. Managers often reject ideas because they think about the cost of implementing them. Time, people, skills, money and other resources. Sometimes it means that ideas get rejected too soon. So consider the idea even if you know it's difficult to implement. If you reject it too quickly, you reduce the chance of the person suggesting another idea. Also value small innovations. Most ideas won't radically transform your organization, but many small changes can create big results. For example, Britain's professional cycling team, Team Sky, won the Tour de France in 2012 by making lots and lots of 1% improvements in minor areas. Next, reward mistakes. As much as you want to reward people for their success, you might also institute a biggest mistake of the month award. Of course, you're not rewarding the mistake, you're recognizing the initiative in trying something different. Recognize innovation. Many innovators don't need to be rewarded, but are happy just to be recognized for their ideas. So make this a regular part of your team processes. For example, highlighting and praising innovative ideas in your regular team meetings. And then, do reward innovation, because some people are motivated by reward, so consider ways to reward the best ideas. And finally, give them meaningful rewards. Choose the appropriate rewards for each team member. One person might value an extra day off over Christmas, another one might want a gift voucher, another one might want to attend a conference for their own professional development. So give them the reward that's most appropriate and most valuable for them. So we've come to the end of this second part of our program, which is all about employee-driven innovation. It's the biggest part of this program because most of the innovation that you lead is going to come from your team. So let's do a quick summary of those three areas, which are all about lighting the fire of innovation in your team. And especially when you consider what action to take, think about all three areas, creating the space, igniting a spark, and fanning the flames. So to start with, creating a space. If your team doesn't already have a safe and constructive environment that encourages innovation, start by creating that white space for them and do it in small ways. It's not enough to just tell them to be more innovative. Look for ways to give them permission, focus, and time. Then igniting a spark. Direct the innovation by asking questions that generate different ways of thinking. Use any of the questions that I've covered so far to start the conversation. Innovative ideas can come from anywhere, so don't think too much about which questions will generate the best ideas. Choose them at random, share them with the team, and see where they lead. And then fan the flame. So be proactive in putting the ideas into action. Even a small action that creates a small change is better than none at all, especially if you're creating an innovative space for the first time. And if an idea creates a big change, go for that idea first, of course, because it'll help build momentum. But even if you can only create a small change, do that. Innovation is an ongoing process. It's not a single event, so it's better to start small with a process that you can repeat, such as 10 minutes at a weekly meeting, rather than this grand one-off event that quickly loses momentum. So that's employee-driven innovation. Now let's move on to the last section of our program, which is all about action, making it happen. 
Because of course, if you don't take action, you haven't actually achieved anything. Creativity is about having ideas, but innovation is putting those ideas into action. Innovation is applied creativity, and the applied bit is just as important as a creative bit. So let me give you some broad guidelines about making innovation actually happen in your team and your organization. Now, this is not a program about productivity, so I'm not going to talk in a lot of detail about how to get things done. But I want to share with you two broad principles about how to make innovation a regular practice in your workday and with your team. The first thing is to align it with your mission. The best innovation happens in the context of a big picture, and the big picture is based around your mission. So you can randomly have the ideas and generate small creative ideas, big creative ideas, put them into action. But if they don't align with your mission, then first, it's harder to get buy-in for actually putting those ideas into action. And second, even if you do put them into action, they may not be effective because they're not aligned with your mission. So make sure that your innovation is aligned with your overall business or organization mission. So let me give you a couple of examples. First of all, think about the tech space. You think about three big companies, Facebook, Google, and Twitter. Here are their missions. So Facebook's mission is to make the world more open and connected. Google's is to organize the world's information and make it universally accessible and useful. And Twitter's is to give everyone the power to create and share ideas and information instantly without barriers. You can see they're all three big online technology companies and in a lot of ways they overlap with each other but they've got three very different missions and you can think about teams and leaders and and individuals within those companies when they're innovating the best innovation is the innovation that aligns with their mission so somebody innovating at Google will be doing very different innovation than somebody innovating at Facebook and that'll be different from somebody innovating at Twitter let me give you another example. These are three clothing companies with very different missions. Patagonia, which specializes in outdoor clothing, their mission is to use business to inspire and implement solutions to the environmental crisis. Ann Taylor, which specializes in women's clothing, their mission is to inspire and connect with women to put their best selves forward every day. And Life is Good, another clothing company, their mission is to spread the power of optimism. You can imagine if you're working in one of those three companies, your innovation, if it's aligned with the company's mission, is going to be very different than if you're working in one of the other two companies. So that's the first area, align with mission where possible. The second is a principle, habit trumps discipline. So think about the habits in your personal life. Things like brushing your teeth twice a day, getting dressed, a glass of red wine with dinner, washing up the dirty dishes in the sink, putting on your seatbelt when you get in the car, going to the gym, eating everything on your plate, locking the door when you leave the house. What about habits in your professional life? Things like your weekly status meeting, checking email every few minutes, adding appointments to your calendar immediately, interrupting colleagues when you walk by their desk, packing or buying the same lunch every day, taking the same route home, now, I'm not making any judgment about whether these are good or bad, effective or ineffective habits. I'm just saying these are habits, which means that you do them without forcing yourself to do them. Now, what if you could make innovation a habit as well? It's tempting to say that you're going to innovate tomorrow when things quieten down and you have the time, but tomorrow never comes. So what if innovation was a habit? just like brushing your teeth or checking Facebook every few minutes. Then you wouldn't have to force yourself to do it, you would just do it. You wouldn't need discipline because that's too much like hard work. When it comes to innovation, habit trumps discipline. So here are four ways that you can create positive habits for innovation. Time, space, money and people.
So first of all, make time for innovation. Now this doesn't have to be as generous as Google's famous 20% time for employees to work on anything they wanted. You could create much simpler habits such as stopping your regular work early on Friday afternoons so you have a couple of hours set aside for innovation. Or you could hold an innovation meeting at the same time each week. Or set aside 15 minutes every day when you wake up to do innovation. It might be even as simple as the idea that I've suggested earlier, which is starting your weekly team meeting by asking everybody to share one innovative idea that they've seen in the past week. And again, thanks to my friend and colleague Nils Vesk for this idea. Secondly, find the right space for innovation. So don't wait for the annual conference on Hamilton Island. Find or create spaces for innovation in your regular work. For example, this could be working in the cafe down the road instead of sitting at your office desk. It could be a walking meeting rather than a sit-down meeting. For distributed teams, in other words virtual remote teams, maybe an informal video conference call with pizza or coffee for all attendees can be the best environment for sparking interesting conversations and innovative ideas. Different things work for different people, so let each team member choose the individual innovation space that works best for them. Number three is set aside money for innovation. So on a personal level, every month I take 3% of the salary that I pay myself and put it into a separate technology and gadgets bank account, which is purely for buying technology, gadgets and other tools. Thanks to my friend and colleague Michael Harrison for this idea. And it means that I've got the budget to invest in new technology, even if I can't completely justify the need for it. I also put 10% of my salary into an education bank account, which I use for conferences, online courses, books, and other learning resources. And again, because the money is already put aside, I can use it whenever I want to, and I don't have to wait up against anything else. That would mean that I have to make decisions and have discipline. Now, you don't have to follow exactly the same formula, but I hope that you understand the principle. Set money aside for innovation and use it. You can make this work for yourself personally and for your team's budget as well. It's much easier to set the money aside in advance than to try to justify spending it later. And finally, surround yourself with the right people for innovation. Make it a habit to hang out with people who challenge your thinking, share different ideas, and have diverse backgrounds and experiences. Now, you may find them in your team as well. And you should definitely spend time with your team members, individually and as a group, for innovation. But you could look outside as well and encourage your team to do the same. For example, I host a monthly business book club and discussion group. And it's a diverse group of people who attend. We have people from technology, from marketing, from education, from aged care, from health and fitness and more. And we don't solve all the world's problems, but I do always leave with something new to consider and that I can apply in my life. And because it's a regular event, it's a habit for me. So when we get into routines or get very busy, it's all too easy to interact with all the same people all the time. So it's good to have a tribe, but staying only in that tribe can stifle innovation. So what can you do to make innovation a habit? Make no mistake, if you're not innovating, you're falling behind. And if you don't make innovation a habit, it rarely happens by itself. I hope you enjoyed that. As I said, that's from my new audio program, The Future of Innovation. It's a CD and an MP3 program, and I do have a few CDs that I'd like to give away to listeners of this podcast. So if you're interested in getting a free copy, email me, gihan at gihanperera.com. That's G-I-H-A-N at G-I-H-A-N-P-E-R-E-R-A dot com. And send me a postal address because a CD, I'll send you a copy of the CD in the post anywhere around the world. There's no catch. And uh, as I say in advertising, available while stocks last. 
Now, if you want to know what's on the horizon for the future, download my app, Fit for the Future, for your iPhone or your Android phone. And I created this app because many people come up to me after my keynote conference presentations and ask me how I do my own research, what blogs I read, what podcasts I listen to, what books I read. And they want some recommendations so that they can become fit for the future as well. So I created this app. I update it regularly with news, articles, videos, book recommendations, and other resources to help you become fit for the future. It's free and it's ad-free, so head over to the iTunes Store or the Google Play Store and just search for Fit for the Future and you'll find my app there. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and found something valuable for your personal and professional life. And if you did get some value from it, I would love it if you could do me a favor and give me a review and a rating in the iTunes store, in the podcast area. And that helps to promote it to other people as well. And if you want me to share ideas like this live at your next conference, then check out my speaking topics and workshop topics at gihanspeaks.com. And if you want to engage with me in other ways, go to gihanparera.com, where you can find my blog, my newsletter, my podcast, videos, and my free webinars series. They're all free and they're all designed to help you leverage the potential of your organization, your team, and of course yourself, that you can become fit for the future. This is Gihan Pereira. Bye for now. For show notes, past episodes, and more, visit gihanperera.com. And remember, great minds don't think alike.